Amen. When the Roman Empire was defeated by the Goth and Vandals, it wasn't conquered by swords and spears. Rome's downfall was its inability to control its own selfishness. Greco-Roman culture was full of sexualized religion, unbridled vice, callous consciences. Rome was defeated by depravity. Rather than be overcome from without, Rome fell from within. And when in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul wrote of Rome's moral bankruptcy, he was looking out his window at the city of Corinth, the sin city of his day. Corinth was the city that had forgotten how to blush. And its church was like a tiny boat afloat on a vast sea of immorality. Tragically, the gospel ship had sprung a few leaks. The evil in Corinth had infiltrated the church at Corinth. And here in 1 Corinthians chapters 5 through 7, Paul tries to patch the leaks. The Apostle Paul begins to deal with the subjects of sex and marriage within the Christian community. And he begins with a shocking problem, verse 1, chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. A young man in the church was shacking up with his stepmom. Church members guilty of incest, blatant immorality. This was more like something you'd see on Jerry Springer than in church. And Paul was appalled. The New King James translates the first words in verse 1. It is actually reported. Commentator Alan Redpath, he renders it, it is commonly reported. Or it is everywhere noised abroad. In short, You guys are the talk of the town. And Paul mourns over this. Not even the perverted pagans tolerated this kind of immorality among them. He doesn't just rebuke the perpetrators. He asks the church, doesn't anybody see how this is undermining your witness? Don't you see how terrible this is? Verse 2, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. See, worse than the sin, the Corinthians church attitude toward their sin. It was worse than the sin itself. They were not only tolerating an awful immorality, they were proud of their tolerance. And you can hear them boast. Oh, the Bible says, judge not. Far be it from us to tell someone else right from wrong. We teach grace here. Sounds like a 21st century rationalization. I like how Peterson paraphrases verses 2 and 3. He says, One of your men is sleeping with his stepmother, and you're so above it all that it doesn't even faze you. Shouldn't this break your hearts? Shouldn't it bring you to your knees in tears? Shouldn't this person and his conduct be confronted and dealt with? They were proud when they should have been mourning. Actually, the word translated mourned in verse 2 was used for grieving the dead. And that's how they should have viewed this sin in their fellowship, as a loss, a loss of purity, a loss of witness. 
Instead, they were patting themselves on the back when they should have been falling on their knees. Verse 3 tells us, For indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, having already judged as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. Notice here, Paul isn't fearful of judging. In fact, without speaking to this fellow personally, without, quote, hearing his heart, without even listening to his rationalizations, Paul calls this man out on the carpet. You know, chapter 4 warned us about making superficial judgments of another man's ministry. But this particular judgment had nothing to do with motives or ministry. This was about morality. This couple was engaging in sin. You know, the Old Testament law was clear about sexual prohibitions. Leviticus 18 verse 8 plainly forbids incest. This wasn't a gray issue. This wasn't about culture or personal preference. God is clear about his will. This was sinful behavior. And thus Paul became dogmatic. You see, where the Bible has already judged a sin, then our condemnation of it is not ours, but God's judgment. Here Paul isn't afraid to take a stand where God takes a stand. He isn't afraid to speak up when God clearly has spoken. You know, today's church should follow Paul's example. We weaken our witness when we tolerate immorality among us. Church discipline still needs to be taken seriously. For Paul commands this church, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now remember, this isn't a believer struggling, trying to straighten out his life and get victory over his sin. You know, we help the person who wants to live an overcoming life. No, this was a Christian who was deliberately ignoring God's commandments and living in open defiance. And this type of attitude shouldn't be tolerated. Back in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said that if someone sins, a brother should go to him and seek to restore him. If he doesn't listen, then that brother should come back with two or three other believers. We can assume the Corinthians had taken these first steps. Jesus then goes on to say that if the brother refuses to hear the two or three, he should be brought before the whole church. And if that fails to convince him to repent, then he gets the boot. You know, you've heard of the right hand of Christian fellowship. There's also the right foot of Christian disfellowship. But notice the goal at every stage of the discipline process. It's to bring this brother to repentance. That's the goal. See, even if he gets kicked out of God's family, it said that he's being delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. The idea is he needs to taste the full consequences of his rebellion without the safety net of the Christian community. Hopefully that'll convince him or her of the error of their ways. The point of it all, though, is to bring him to repentance. You know, when a person is part of a church, certain protections are inherent. He or she is surrounded by support and encouragement and even resources. To a degree, the church is sheltering him from the magnitude of his sin. Paul's advice here is to turn this guy out into the storm. 
His problem is his flesh. His I know best. I can do it on my own type of attitude. Paul says let him do it on his own. Let him be by himself. Let him learn the hard way how much he needs to humble himself and submit to God's way. The church does a person a disservice when we keep a rebellious person from reaping the full brunt of what they sow. You know, it's interesting later in Paul's second letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, he encourages the church to receive this man again into their fellowship. He says, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Apparently, the Corinthians had obeyed Paul and had kicked him out. And it had produced the desired effects. The season of separation from the church caused this incestuous man to repent. You know, church discipline isn't easy, but it's necessary and it works. So in verse 6, Paul addresses their initial attitude. He says, your glorying is not good. And how the modern church needs to take this to heart. Today's world is tolerant of everything except intolerance. Guys, just because the world loses its moral bearings, just because it gets mushy about what's right and wrong, doesn't mean the church should. Remember, we cannot be for God and we cannot love people if we're not against sin, for it harms both. Paul warns, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Sin in the church is like yeast in a lump of dough. It works beneath the surface to permeate and infiltrate. It infects the whole lump from the inside out. Sin is like a cancer. If allowed to spread, sin can destroy the whole body. But if caught early, it can be cut out. When it comes to bad attitudes and blatant sin at church, It needs to be dealt with sooner rather than later. Tolerance or apathy is lethal. If stubborn sins aren't cut out, they can metastasize and grow stronger. And this is why Paul says in verse 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly are unleavened. Purge out the old leaven. In other words, get rid of the infecting behavior. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He compares the living out of our Christian lives with the celebration of a Passover. Here Paul calls Jesus our Passover. You remember when the Hebrews exited Egypt in slavery, the day before God told them to not inject yeast into their bread. Why? They were leaving the next day. There wouldn't be time for the bread to rise. Thus, the unleavened bread and their obedience was symbolic of their faith in God's promise. And this was just one of many symbols regarding the Passover Seder that spoke of Jesus. He's also our sacrificial lamb our hidden matzah, our cup of redemption. As the Hebrews celebrated Passover with unleavened bread, we Christians should celebrate our freedom in Christ with a sincere devotion and with the avoidance of deliberate sin. And so in verse 9, Paul continues, I wrote to you in my epistle. And what epistle does he mean? We're not sure. 
You know, we call the letter that we're reading 1 Corinthians. But evidently, there must have been a letter prior to this one. Some Bible scholars suggest for multiple reasons that 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1 is the missing letter that he references here. Other Bible scholars conclude that the previous letter was a correspondence that's now been lost. It's all an interesting discussion, but it doesn't change what Paul is saying. He had written to this church before. He says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person." You see, the Corinthians had gotten it backwards. They were turning up their noses at their heathen neighbors while they were ignoring the hypocrisy in their own ranks. Rest assured, when the church views the people Jesus died to save and wants to reach as the enemy, we've become worthless to God. When we come out of the world, we're not supposed to shut the door behind us. We need to turn around in compassion and lend a helping hand and bring as many people with us as we can. Do unbelievers around us see us as a club for the clean cuts or as a hospital for the messed ups? I hope a hospital. We need to be saints, not snobs. You know, I heard a sad statistic that by the time a person has been a Christian for two years, they've basically lost all meaningful relationships with unbelievers. In other words, how quickly our lives begin to revolve around the church and around other Christians. And we end up with no friendships with non-Christians. Thus, we have no opportunities to share the gospel. Hey, I believe in the importance of Christian fellowship. But friends, connecting to a church doesn't mean disconnecting from the world. Often we become so worried, we become so fearful of the world affecting us. You know... Uh, transmitting its evil to us, and particularly to our kids. That we don't cultivate opportunities where we can affect the world for good. We retreat into our bubble. It's easier to hang out with Christians, go to the ballpark with Christians, hang out, have my kids on a Christian team, to stay in that sterile, temptation-free church bubble than it is to rub shoulders with the lost, especially on their own turf. That becomes more risky, doesn't it? In fact, that's a lot like Jesus leaving the halls of heaven and coming to earth. Or that's a lot like the guy who took a risk and dared to tell you about Jesus. Imagine that. Maybe it's time for some of us to stop playing it so safe and take some risks of our own to reach people for Jesus. Remember, our enemy is not the sinner who doesn't know Jesus. He and she can't change even if they wanted. They lack the power. Our enemy is the person who claims to know Jesus, yet stubbornly holds on to his sin with no desire to change. Paul says the church needs to shun not the heathen, but the hypocrite. And then he says in verse 12, For what have I to do with judging those who also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? 
But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. You know, this is why I get so weary of pastors always railing and condemning the ungodly in society. Pointing out the evil in the world. What do you expect? I mean, why are we surprised when sinners sin? Why are we surprised when the lost world acts lost? Our place isn't to judge lost people, but to love them and reach them for Jesus. If the church wants to judge someone, guess who we should judge? Why don't we start with ourselves? If we cleaned up the church, we'd be a more winsome and effective witness. Then when God judges the world, there'd be fewer people to judge. Well, in chapter 6, Paul deals with another problem. Another problem in the Corinthian church, he writes. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? See, the Corinthian church had become so dysfunctional that believers were settling their grievances in the pagan courts. And again, Paul was appalled by the horrible testimony this created. I mean, who wants to join a church or a group that's so fractured they can't even settle their own disputes? Paul rebukes them in verse 2. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you, not un- are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? You remember in Luke chapter 19, Jesus promised the faithful servant. He said, because you were faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. In other words, when the Lord returns to this earth to set up his kingdom, apparently those who have served him faithfully here... And now, will reign with him then. So here's Paul's logic. If one day you're going to rule cities, then why can't you solve the petty problems among you right now? Why are you dragging your brother before the pagan court? It says in verse 3, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life And whenever I read this verse, man, this boggles my brain. I'm going to judge angels? I have no idea what that fully means. Psalm 8 tells us that man was created a little lower than the angels, that one day will be exalted above them. Hebrews 1 verse 14 refers to angels as ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. Did you know the angels are ministering to us? There are ministering spirits, our assistants, so to speak. Imagine this. One day, I'm going to give my guardian angel a report card. Yo, Gabe, where were you on Highway 78 the other day when I had that fender bender, man? Exactly how, I don't know. But somehow, we're going to judge angels. That is obviously a heavy responsibility. Which means that in the here and now, we should at least be able to settle our civil disputes. Paul continues, he says, If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are at least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers. He's saying, isn't there one fair-minded fellow among you who can settle your disputes? 
See, instead of keeping matters in-house, the church at Corinth had paraded their contentions and their arguments before Judge Judy. They were out there in the world talking about what was going on in the church. And the world was mocking. Paul says it would be better to avoid court and be cheated a few dollars than to go before a secular judge and say to the world that Christians can't settle their own disputes. Paul would rather a church member be cheated than the cause of Christ be stained. Notice verse 7. He says, Now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Paul is saying, It would be better to take a personal loss than to disgrace the name of Christ by going before a pagan court. It's an interesting thought. Hey, we should be willing to suffer personally before we let the cause of Christ suffer publicly. He says, no, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. It was a shame what was occurring there in Corinth. You know, in most families, the unwritten rule is to not air your dirty laundry in public. I'm sure you've heard that. You know, the worst thing you can do for a marriage is to hash over your husband's problems in a public setting. Or to chat up your wife's faults at the next men's prayer breakfast. Not good ideas. You see, the problem in Corinth was not that the Christians couldn't get along. As long as Christians are subject to their flesh, quarrels will occur. But we should be discreet and we should settle these disputes in-house. The church should moderate its own conflicts, not in the civil courts. And then Paul writes in verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And here Paul lists a series of lifestyles that will keep you out of heaven. Notice he said, these are the people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And first on the list is fornicators. The Greek word is pornos, from which we get our word pornography. In the Greek language, this was a sweeping term, referring to all forms of illicit sexual activity, prostitution, and adultery, and living together before marriage, and hooking up, and friends with benefits, and incest, and pedophilia, and threesomes, and etc., and etc., and etc. In fact, pornos included everything from seeing a pretty girl and thinking a lustful thought all the way to grotesque bestiality. And sadly, today the internet has made both available at the click of a mouse. And Paul is warning, keep clicking that mouse. If you continually and persistently indulge in these perversions, you will rot out your soul. You will get into a rut from which you may never escape. Understand, Paul isn't saying that a person who is tempted and fails in a moment of weakness can't inherit the kingdom of God. That would contradict a host of other scriptures. Jesus provides forgiveness for his people. Aren't you glad? Aren't you thankful? He does forgive. But what this is saying 
is that a real relationship with God will protect us from an uninterrupted lifestyle of sexual sin. There'll be conviction. There'll be red flags. Jesus will give us power to overcome. There can be victory. Paul continues, he says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. A literal translation of the end of verse 9 there would read, nor effeminate, nor abusers. He's referring in the Greek language to both the passive and active participants in a homosexual act. Again, this doesn't mean that a person who struggles with homosexual thoughts and tendencies can't be a Christian. Not so. Even a person who stumbles and falls to temptation. Again, there is still forgiveness in Jesus' name. But what this does mean is that a man or woman who accepts homosexual relationships as a legitimate form of sexual expression and practices these behaviors is void of repentance. And it's the unrepentant person who Paul says will not inherit the kingdom of God. His list continues in verse 10. He says, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, what applies to homosexuals goes for thieves, for greedy people, for alcoholics. Paul is saying that if any person engages in the uninterrupted, unrepentant practice of sin, it's evident that there's something wrong in their relationship with God. Though that person might say they're a Christian, the evidence speaks otherwise. And notice the weightiness of Paul's words. You can't escape it. These folks will not inherit the kingdom of God. They won't be walking the halls of heaven. I didn't write that. The Bible says that. Yet notice the first six words in verse 11. Paul's dire warning is followed by perhaps the most hopeful words in all of the Bible. For Paul writes, And such were some of you. And such were some of you. Those are the most grace-soaked lines in all the Scripture. Apparently, the Corinthian church consisted of former fornicators and ex-adulterers and previous idolaters and recovering homosexuals and sodomites and thieves and covetous and drunkards and revilers and extortionists. Oh, the Christians in Corinth, they didn't come from good moral upbringing. These weren't Boy Scouts or Brownies before they got saved. This was a wild bunch. But notice the operative word, were. That was all in their past now. For in Christ, they had become a new creation. Later, Paul writes, old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And friends, that's the power of the gospel. That he can change any sinner and turn them into a saint. Jesus turns hellions into heirs of heaven. And this is why the gospel is such a miracle. The thief, the alcoholic, the homosexual, the sex addict doesn't have to stay that way. If you're trapped and you're in bondage this morning, you don't have to stay that way. There's freedom for you. There's freedom in Jesus' name. And such were, were. Some of you. Paul writes, but you were washed. You you were were defiled. 
You were on the dredges of this world, and yet now you're washed. But you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And I love this. You guys were filthy, but now you've been washed. You're clean. You're speaking span. You were worthless, but now you've been set apart and sanctified and made valuable to God. You were guilty, but now you've been justified and forgiven. He cleanses us. He elevates us. He forgives us. Oh, Jesus has the power to change the very core of a person. And once we're changed, verse 12 spells out the Christian's moral code. The Christian ethic. You know, the Jews have their Ten Commandments. Islam has five laws. But Christianity also has a code of conduct by which all Christians in all cultures at all times should live. And it's really quite a shocking standard. He says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now talk about a loose, permissive standard. Don't don't anybody say that Christianity is legalistic. Talk about a permissive standard. All things are lawful. You Christians, how do you, well, all things are lawful for us. The person who accuses Christianity of being strict and repressive and legalistic hasn't read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Christianity has no taboos per se. In fact, Paul says, anything goes, how can you get any freer than all things are lawful? Yet, continue to read the sentence. But all things are not helpful. See, the Christian is free from the law, the do's and the don'ts. That's not where you should be putting your attention. God has made it simpler for us. Here's Christianity. Rather than God assigning us rules, His Spirit comes to rule over our hearts. He changes us from the inside out. Though our nature is to buck God and to look out for ourselves, God's Spirit comes and supplies us a new nature, a new disposition, one that loves God and one that loves our neighbor. So the issue by which Christians should judge a deed, right or wrong, is no longer is it lawful, but is it helpful? Will this activity deepen my love for Christ? Will it help me love my brother and benefit him? Our decision-making filter is no longer laws, but now love. See, laws are like leashes on a wild dog. They choke the dog from doing what he wants to do. Whereas Christianity changes our want-tos. It changes us from the inside out. It transforms us from our animal instincts into a child of God. It's now our nature to love others and to glorify God. The goal for us now is to get our behavior in line with our nature. And so Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. See, here's the Christian's concern when it comes to conduct. Since Christ died to set me free, my priority should be to stay free. And thus, anything that threatens to take away my freedom and impose its bondage becomes a sin to me. In other words, if I'm not free to put it down, then I'm not free to pick it up. Again, here is the Christian ethic according to Paul. I'm free to participate if it's helpful 
and if it doesn't rob me of the freedom that Christ has given me. Take alcohol, for example. You're free to drink a glass of wine as long as you're free to stop after one glass. See, some folks have a psychological propensity that makes them addictive to alcohol, a dependency. I've heard it's as high as one in every eight people throughout our population. Well, if that's the case with you, then it's a sin for you to take the first sip. If you can't stop at one, you're not free to have one. See, this is the only rule for a Christian. Do what you want as long as you don't fumble away your faith or cause your neighbor's faith to stumble. The Christian isn't governed by law. We're governed by love. And then he says in verse 13, Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. I'm certain that not smoking a cigarette and not eating a lot of red meat and fatty foods has some health benefits. Abstinence keeps your lungs clear and your arteries open. But you know what Paul's saying here? Is even if you restrain from all of that, in the end, you're dead. We're all still dead. You you health nuts out there, you're going the same place I'm going. You're going to be in a grave one day. I mean, food's for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. The dead guy who was healthy before he got hit by that truck and the dead guy who was sick for three years before his body gave out, hey, trust me, both of them are equally dead. See, the ancient world was full of dietary and aesthetic restrictions that supposedly made you more spiritual or more pleasing to God, better than other people. But here Paul tells the Corinthians that neither feasting or fasting, kosher or unkosher, cholesterol or cholesterol free, gluten or non-gluten is going to impact your status with God and your eternal destiny. God ultimately destroys both stomach and food. How we manage our physical appetites don't make us righteous before God. But the Corinthians had mistakenly applied this same logic to sex. In other words, they had been saying, I've got a hunger drive, I've got a thirst drive, I've got a sleep drive, I've got a sex drive. So since it's not a sin for me to eat anything I want, or drink anything I want, or sleep anytime I want, it must not matter to God if I have sex whenever or with whomever I want. This was faulty thinking, but this was the Corinthians thinking. And in the remainder of the chapter, Paul offers a correction. He writes, Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. In other words... The Lord isn't as interested in what you put in your body as he is with what you do with your body. You can take care of your body and live to be 100 years old. Or you can eat potato chips and drop dead at 40. That isn't really God's chief concern. For God is going to resurrect and perfect your body one day anyway. No, what matters most to God is that you use your body now 
for his glory. He says in verse 15, Now you not now do you now you do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Again, God cares about what we do with our body. So when you use your body sexually, outside of heterosexual marriage, Paul is saying you betray the Lord and you become a harlot. In essence, you are selling your soul along with your body. If not for money, you're doing it for a night of pleasure or for the acceptance of another person, or for some other advancement. What you do with your body creates entanglements of which you are unaware. Paul writes, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Here's what we don't realize. Unlike eating and drinking and sleeping and these other physical drives, sex carries with it deep spiritual connotations. Sex isn't just another bodily function. It's a spiritual act as well as a physical act. It symbolizes eternal relationships, even our relationship with God. See, I like to think of sex as superglue. Superglue creates an unbreakable bond. You superglue something together and then you try to pull that item apart after it's been superglued and it doesn't separate as easily as it joined, is it? There's some ripping. There's some tearing. Not just at the point where the two parties touched, but the tearing goes broader. It goes deeper. And this is what happens with sex. It doesn't just interlock two bodies. Realize it or not. The sex act fuses together two souls, even two spirits. You become one on a spiritual level so that if there's separation afterwards, there's emotional tearing. There's damage to the soul and to the spirit of a person. A man once wrote a letter to Ann Landers. Dear Ann, I've been sleeping with three women for several months. Until a few days ago, none of them knew the others existed. Things were fine. By chance, two of them met, compared notes, and found me out. Now they're furious. What should I do? P.S. Please don't give me any of your moral junk. Signed, Trapped. Well, Anne replied, Dear Trapped, The one major thing that separates human beings from animals is a God-given sense of morality. Since you don't have a sense of morality, I strongly suggest you consult a veterinarian. Sex is not just another bodily function. There's spiritual connotations here. It's a spiritual act. Tragically, today's society mistakenly sees sexual activity as little more than animal instincts. But oh, the sex act is much more. It carries profound, divine implications. When you become a Christian, your body is no longer your own. It becomes the property of Jesus, literally. The body of Christ. His spirit dwells in your spirit. 
Verse 17 says, He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. This means that if you engage in any form of sex outside the boundaries of heterosexual marriage, you are prostituting the body of Christ. You're selling out fidelity to Jesus for the cheap thrill of a moment's pleasure. How do you think he's going to feel about that? When a believer logs on to a porno site, he's logged the body of Christ onto that site. For a believer to climb in bed with another person's spouse, you've just pulled the sheets over the body of Christ. For a believer to walk into a strip club, it's the body of Christ that you have just escorted into that strip club. Again, how do you think Jesus is going to feel about that? Participate in sex outside of marriage. and You're not just risking emotional rejection or an STD or an unwanted pregnancy. More importantly, you are violating the spiritual bond between you and Christ. Since you're one spiritually with Jesus, to be illicitly joined to someone else is to betray Jesus. Thus Paul writes to believers, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Flee it, man. Run from it. Don't go there. A teenager once asked his grandfather, said, Gramps, your generation didn't have all these venereal diseases. What did you wear to have safe sex? Old Gramps answered, son, we wore a wedding ring. For every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. You know, to a degree, everybody's core identity is tied to their sexuality. Gender's part of it, but it runs even deeper. Think about this. Our capacity to reproduce, to reproduce ourselves, is tied to our sexuality. That's what makes it such an integral part of who we are. That's why it's such a part of our identity. That's not true of any other bodily function. Hey, what I put in my stomach sustains me, but it has nothing to do with me multiplying my likeness and propagating myself. That's why I have no problem with you watching me eat. may not be pleasant, but I have no problem with you watching me eat. It has no bearing on my identity or my personhood. But if you saw me naked, oh my. I'd run for cover. You'd need to close your eyes. You blush. I'd blush. You'd blush too, probably. <laughs> See, instinctively, humans realize there's something far greater at stake here when it comes to sexuality. This is why every time you're intimate with someone, you give away a part of yourself to that person. You break off a little piece of yourself that you can never get back. As Paul put it, you share your spirit with that person. And when you give yourself away with no guarantee of a forever return, it only cheapens your value. This is one reason why Paul says that sexual sin is a sin against one's own body. Allow yourself to be used as someone else's plaything or pacifier. Rather than be valued as a person. And it will ultimately devastate your self-worth. Illicit sex may provide enjoyment 
and excitement, but it won't provide enrichment. That's why God created sex for marriage, to enrich the love of a marital couple. This is why sex outside of marriage is like robbing your own bank account. What you've saved up, what you've treasured gets stolen from you. It's gone for good. Whereas sex in marriage is making deposits in that account. There's safety there. There's security there. And the deposit becomes a long-term investment that compounds interest and yields rewarding dividends. Well, verse 19 sums it up. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and you are not your own. In the Old Testament, the temple was God's house. And it had a single purpose, the service and worship of God. Likewise, your body is now the house of the Holy Spirit. Your body belongs to Jesus. It was purchased by His blood. And you too have one purpose. You're not free to use your body as you please. Your body is for the service and worship of Jesus Christ. Which is how Paul finishes chapter 6. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And there we have 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6. Another warm, fuzzy set of scriptures. <laughs> 